thought there was another song, so I just... Oh, that's me. Oh, I'm up. Okay. A few years ago, my oldest son was uh, starting hockey, starting to play hockey. And he was a couple years later than some of the kids, and so that first evaluation practice where there's just a pile of kids out on the ice skating around, most of the kids were just flying around, my son leaning on his stick could barely get from one end of the ice to the other, and what ensued in that hour was probably the most painful parenting moment of my life to that point. And I was like, he's going to hate hockey. What have I done to him? I didn't give him enough skating lessons. This is a disaster. And he was at the back of the pack for every drill and could barely participate. We got in the car to go home, and I was just like, oh, how is he going to be feeling? How is this going to go? And from the back, my son Boston said, Dad, was I the best player out there? <laughs> just oblivious. Uh, and I didn't want to lie, so I, was, I just said, buddy, you did awesome. I'm not going to answer that question directly. I'm going to divert and say, I'm so proud of you. That was so fun. <laughs> but my little son in that moment had a complete lack of self-awareness. Complete lack of self-awareness. A, a total lack of assessment of things as they truly were. we're. We're concluding a series that we've been doing for the last number of weeks on Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus has seven words for seven churches, and John the Apostle has recorded them down. We're concluding with a church that had a total lack of awareness. It's assessment of things... And Jesus' true assessment of those things were completely at odds. I, I've talked about this term before, the mushy middle. The mushy middle refers to cultural Christianity. The mushy middle is really those who claim to be morally upright, but look, sound, act, and live no differently than anyone else in the world. The mushy middle are those who, who they don't oppose the gospel, but they, they're never found promoting it either. They, they, they think the Bible has some good stuff in it, but, but, but they don't love it. They don't hunger for it. They want their kids to grow up moral, but, but not, not missional. That, that sounds too risky, too radical. They find some space in their busy weekend to occasionally come to church, but, but don't renovate their entire lives around the cause of the gospel. If you've ever wondered what Jesus thinks about that kind of Christianity, you don't need to wonder anymore. Jesus tells us in our text this morning, and here's what he says, I want to spit that Christian out of my mouth. In fact, the, the, the language is more striking than that. That kind of Christianity, Jesus says, makes me feel like I'm going to vomit. So without further ado, why don't we read the text? Let's let Jesus speak to us this morning. Verse 14 of Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That means the originator of it. I know your works, Jesus says, verse 15, you are either neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let, let's look a little bit deeper into this city of Laodicea. They were famous for three things. The first was it was a banking center. And as a banking center, um, they were a wealthy city. There was an earthquake I referred to that happened in uh, AD 61. And a couple of the uh, other cities in the area received help from Rome to rebuild themselves. One of the churches even renamed itself for a little while after the emperor who so generously helped them rebuild. Laodicea, on the other hand, wouldn't accept the help from Rome. They refused imperial help because they had this spirit of independence, a spirit of self-dependence in the city. So they were a banking center. Second, Laodicea was a medical center. Its medical school was actually famous for its eye ointment, a salve for the eyes. And third, it was a clothing center, most famous for tunics made of local black wool. Referring to that, that earthquake that took place, the Roman historian Tacitus said of the city, said this, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. Here's the thing, the city and the church were alike. They saw themselves as self-sufficient. But as the text has shown us, the church just simply was not self-aware. In their minds, they're rich, prosperous, and needed nothing. They had money, they wore nice clothes, and they had a good health care system. Jesus, who has eyes like a flame of fire, as we saw in Thyatira, which is to say, Jesus sees the heart, he sees in, he sees things as they truly are. Jesus says of this city, of this church that said they had money, nice clothes, good health care, that they were prosperous, they needed nothing. Jesus responds by saying, actually, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I've always had a love for Volkswagens. My first car was a 1984 Rabbit GTI. It needed a lot of work, but I was happy to put in the work. It was a really fun car. My second car was a 92 Volkswagen GTI. And at one point uh, in my early 20s, I bought a VW bus. And I had been looking for a particular Volkswagen van with like the barn doors on the side. And I had all, uh, specific years within that I was looking to get. And I finally sourced one out. I went and I bought it because it had all the features I was looking for. Here's the problem. It was a rust bucket and it was unsafe. 
I bought it because it, it had the barn doors on the side, not realizing that there were some other things about it that are actually more important. See, this city had a wrong assessment of what mattered, of, of what made it a healthy church, of what made them self-sufficient. And they, they, they were navigating all of the wrong categories. And Jesus comes along in this letter and says to this church that thinks it's doing great. Actually, the opposite is true. Laodicea was one of three sister cities. Near, nearby Heropolis had hot healing water, hot healing springs. And nearby Colossae, we see that there's a letter in, in, the, in the Bible uh, to the Colossians. Nearby Colossae had cold, refreshing water. Laodicea, on the other hand, had neither. This is probably the most famous of the seven letters to Laodicea, and this idea of that they were neither hot nor cold is probably really famous. And also in evangelistic services, a lot of times, the comment is made from this text of knock. Jesus is knocking. Will you let him in? Will you receive him? And so this is a really famous letter. Now, what's interesting, though, is, is, is that Laodicea needed to have their water channeled in by stone aqueducts. So by the time that it arrived, uh, it was lukewarm and distasteful. Their water had a putrid taste, and visitors would take a drink of the water and be shocked at the taste and spit it out. Now, sometimes these verses, when Jesus is like, I wish you were either hot or cold, sometimes this, these, that verse gets interpreted as this. Jesus would prefer that you're either white hot on fire for Jesus, or you may as well be a cold atheist. Have you ever heard it that way? Right? Jesus would prefer that you were either on fire or completely opposed to him. Now that, that may be, that may be what the text is saying, but, but I don't hear Jesus saying, I'd prefer you to be in cold opposition to me. It just doesn't seem like the tenor of the ministry of Jesus. Instead, what I think he's saying, a way to see this text is to see it as hot and cold are both useful. Those are both good. Healing, refreshing, right? But to be lukewarm makes Jesus want to vomit, right? It's like he's saying, because you badly misrepresent the life-changing power of the gospel, you neither bring the healing that the gospel truly brings or the refreshment that the gospel truly brings. You do neither, and it's distasteful. And so I want, to, I want us to get to the bottom of this idea of, of a lukewarm Christian this morning. And so here's, here's, here's the outline. We're going to go and look at the signs of lukewarm Christianity. Then we're going to look at the cure for lukewarm Christianity. And then finally, the promise to those who conquer lukewarm Christianity. Here's the danger about lukewarm Christianity is that those, their participants of lukewarm Christianity are completely unaware. In their minds, we have need of nothing. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you're poor and you're naked and you're blind, you're wretched, you're pitiable. And so, so the danger and why I think we need to understand, we need to discover the signs of lukewarm Christianity is because you don't know that you are. So we need to discover that to start. So let's look at the signs of lukewarm Christianity today. Here's the first one. Lukewarm Christians crave the acceptance of others more than God. Now, 
when you make your decisions, it's not that you don't think about God at all. It's just that you think about what others will think more. It's not that, that God is completely absent from your life and absent from your thinking. It's just that you're seeking the approval of others more than you're seeking the approval of God. A sign that you're a lukewarm Christian is not that you reject God. You just don't think about God that much in your decision-making. Second sign, lukewarm Christians love their sin. They don't really hate their sin. And when we, when we read about it, sin in the Bible, we're to hate it, we're to kill it, we're to battle, wage war against it. But lukewarm Christians aren't for that. They don't really hate their sin. They, they actually want to know how close they can get to sin and still get away with it. It's been said this way, lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from sin. They just want to be saved from the penalty of sin. You hear the difference? Lukewarm Christians don't want to be saved from sin. They love the sin. They enjoy the sin. So when they're, when they're really honest about it, they're like, I actually don't want to move on from that. I don't want to kill that sin. I, I quite enjoy it. But they do want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. See, they love what the world loves, but they just don't want to go to hell. I don't really want to be saved from the sins because I love them. I just want fire insurance from the judgment, holy, righteous judgment of God. Lukewarm Christians love their sin. Third, lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith. Lukewarm Christians consider themselves Christians, but they don't want to make other people feel awkward talking about religion, so they rarely bring it up. Oh, that might make them feel uncomfortable. I won't tell them my views about the world, about Jesus, about faith and eternity. The question underneath it, though, is do you really then believe the gospel? Like, how can you believe that what Jesus said about eternity, that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and those who come to faith in Jesus will have their sins forgiven and spend eternity with him in heaven, but those who don't will spend eternity apart from God in hell. How, how can we believe that, but then not speak about that? Penn Gillette is a rather famous atheist, but he's not really so famous for being an atheist. He's famous for being Penn of Penn and Teller. And he, um, he's, he, he, it's interesting. He, he notes that a lot of atheists really want Christians and religious people in general to keep their faith to themselves. That's fine for you. Just don't bring it to me. Don't talk to me about it. Keep it to yourself. But Penn actually ha uh, feels the opposite about it. He's offended if you don't tell him. And here's what he says. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, share their beliefs about God. I don't respect that at all, he says. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a sh the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. But lukewarm Christians rarely share 
their faith. It might be awkward. Fourth, lukewarm Christians don't give sacrificially. Yes, this is about money. And something really funny happens whenever a preacher starts talking about money. A lot of people get offended. I'm a preacher, I know this. Bring up money and people get offended. It's very distasteful. Why do you talk about money, you know? Well, I think the reason I talk about money is because it's probably one of our top two or three idols in our society today. And when we get our back up about preacher talking about money, it's usually a sign that we love our money. (laughs) And so we keep talking about it. Not because we have great plans for your money, but because you do. And when they don't involve Jesus, it's a sign that you're a lukewarm Christian. Lukewarm Christians give when it makes them look good. Lukewarm Christians give when it makes them feel good. But lukewarm Christians rarely, if ever, give in a sacrificial way. Lukewarm Christians give their leftovers, not their first and their best. So there's this story in Malachi where there's these priests and they give an offering to God, but they kept all the best animals for themselves and they gave God the rest, the runts, the blemished ones, and assumed that God would be glad that they even gave something. But God goes on to call what they did evil. Evil. In other words, God doesn't want a penance offering. He wants our first and our best. And it's not a coincidence that Laodicea of the seven churches is the wealthiest church. They are the wealthiest church. And it's those who are accomplished and praised by the world who are financially secure that it would seem are most at risk of becoming lukewarm. What a warning. Lukewarm Christians don't give sacrificially. Fifth, lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. So I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth here for a minute. I I think that God in his grace uses suffering, uses difficulty, uses things that come up in our lives to draw us back to him. And that's a wonderful thing. Okay? It's all right when a need brings you back to God. That's one of God's normal ways of working in our lives. He draws us into deeper relationship through a hard thing. That's his grace to us. But the point I want to get at here is is this idea of just trying to use God to fix something temporarily rather than realizing, coming to the realization that we need God for everything. It's just the idea of God as genie, right? As a genie, as a lamp that you rub, it's like, I need, I have three wishes. This thing's going really bad. We turn to God and we plead and plead and we say, if you do this for me, then I'll, you know, be faithful for the rest of my life. And God, you know, in his grace, you know, sorts out a situation in your life. And for three weeks, you're like, man, praise God. He is so good. And then you kind of forget. This idea that Jesus is really there to temporarily fix stuff in our lives rather than realize that Jesus is our very life. It's these lukewarm Christians that aren't really interested in a relationship with Jesus, but want to use God to get something else. Perhaps they just want to avoid God's justice, but there's no fire or passion for Jesus. Sixth, 
Lukewarm Christians don't live with eternity in mind. It still surprises me, like every time I see Christians living as practical atheists as it pertains to life and death. And what I mean by that is when um, um, health issues or faced with the prospect of dying, when Christians approach it precisely the same way everybody else does it, I find it very confusing. That isn't to say that, that um, illness isn't somewhat scary and the unknowns and how that might feel. I'm not talking about that. It surprises me every time Christians live as practical atheists as it pertains to life and death, this fear of death or an avoidance of death at all costs. Just frankly, it's unbiblical because the Apostle Paul is like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you believe that? Lukewarm Christians don't believe that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If I die, it's an upgrade. Do you believe that? Like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I'm not looking to die anytime soon. But I know this. I have hope in Christ and it only gets better. But lukewarm Christians don't live with eternity in mind and that view. At the end of the day, lukewarm Christians are just not that different than the rest of the world. The water in Laodicea was neither hot like the springs from the south or cold like the rivers of the north. It was room temperature. It was indistinct. They looked like everybody else. They watched the same movies, listened to the same music, raised their kids the same way, spend their money the same way, view retirement like everybody else does. When their marriages get tough, they get divorced like everybody else does. They prioritize the same things everybody else does. When our lives aren't distinct, we represent the world more than we do Jesus because we live comfortably in complacency. It is the great threat of Laodicea in Christianity. These are the kind of people Jesus calls lukewarm. And you know why I'm able to rattle off a list like that? This is what lukewarm looks like. This is what lukewarm looks like. This is what lukewarm looks like. It's because I, I feel it pressing me on every side, every day, and winning some of the time. That's how I can list off a list like that. I mean, I know you must relate to some of those things on the list. Like, yeah. Like I did, I, I'm reading this and I'm just like, man, I feel the warning for you. I feel the warning for me because it presses us. This lackadaisical attitude to the only thing in the universe that truly matters. So Jesus' words here shatter some of our categories of what we think Jesus thinks about us. We're, we're, we're typically convinced that he loves what we do for him. And so this shatters some of the categories, and I think that's a good thing. We need to wake up. We need eyes to see our spiritual realities, and that's where Jesus goes next. Here's the question. What does Jesus offer as the cure for lukewarm Christianity? Well, this has been a heavy sermon so far, but I'm pleased to tell you that he offers hope. He offers good news. Let's read the next little bit. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. 
So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Let's look at the cure for lukewarm Christianity. Jesus is saying a few things here and we just need to get them really clear. Jesus is saying, buy from me. He's using the language of a banking city, right? Commerce, exchange. And he's saying, buy from me. But the irony is this. We are to buy from Jesus what can only come through grace. We're to buy from Jesus true spiritual riches. We're to buy from Jesus clothing that covers shame, his righteous clothing. And we're to buy from Jesus what can only give spiritual sight to the blind. Jesus' heart, this is the beauty of the gospel, Jesus' heart towards those who think they have no need isn't to bring harm to them, it's to come with help. And so Jesus says, be zealous and repent. In five out of the seven churches we see in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus tells them to repent. And the only two where he's like, just persevere, just keep doing what you're doing, are poor and persecuted churches. And to the extremes of the two churches where Jesus doesn't call them to repentance, I wouldn't say we face those kinds of poverty or persecution. And so Jesus' word to the lukewarm is repent and zealously repent passionately repent and keep on repenting. See, true followers of Jesus recognize their wretchedness and continually turn to Jesus for his riches, to be clothed in his righteousness and to be given spiritual sight. The further along I go in my Christian faith, the less I'm like, oh, I've arrived. I can mail it in. (laughs) The further I go with Jesus, I'm like, oh, wow, I am a worse sinner than I even realized. I am doing deeper work, and it's just like, wow. I'm seeing more and more how great his grace is. So how can those who are lukewarm become what they are not? How does warm water turn to hot or cold water? How can their faith move from nauseating lukewarmness to healing for the spiritual sick and refreshing for the spiritual thirsty? Well, this is so gospel. This is so Jesus. The answer is, open the door, because Jesus is right there. Embrace Jesus. And and so there's a funny irony in the text. He's like, buy from me. Well, how does someone who is wretched, pitiable, poor, naked, and blind buy anything? Like, how do you do that? So picture a person who is poor, blind, and naked, and they're supposed to gain wealth somehow, gain monetary ability to buy from Jesus. I mean, they're homebound, right? They're naked, blind, and poor. They're helpless. So how, what do you do at that point? And that's just the point. We're not supposed to go do. We're supposed to open the door and invite Jesus in. We're to invite Jesus into the very areas we've excluded Jesus. into the very areas where we've neglected Jesus, where we've claimed to be self-sufficient in an area of our faith, in an area of our lives, where we're like, I've got this, I'm nailing it, I'm doing fine, but we've actually excluded Jesus from that aspect of our lives or from our entire lives. We don't have to go do anything to earn God's favor. Jesus stands at the door and knocks and just invites us to open the door. We're invited 
We're to invite Jesus into the very areas we've excluded him. And what does he say he'll do? He says he'll come in and sit at the table with us and he'll share a meal with us. This is a picture of fellowship, a picture of friendship. This is a picture of intimacy. Jesus says, if we would invite him in, he will come in and begin to renovate every aspect of our lives that we have excluded him from, for our good, for our joy. And here's what's even more astounding. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and not only, not only to come in and sit at the table with, with you, but to lift you up to his throne. Verse 21 tells us, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne <clears throat> as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So finally, the promise to those who conquer lukewarm Christianity. Just to set the stage for this, I want to I quote uh, what Daryl Johnson wrote about this church. He said, this last of the seven messages to the churches is at once the hardest hitting and most inviting. Jesus expresses his displeasure in almost violent terms. And here Jesus offers the greatest blessing imaginable, the greatest blessing thus far to all the churches. On the one hand, I will spit you out of my mouth. On the other hand, eat with me and I with you, and you will sit with me on my throne. No greater threat, no greater promise. So what does it mean that Jesus says, and you will sit with me on my throne. Well, this is the very end of Revelation chapter three. And if you were to keep reading all the way through Revelation chapter four, you know what you will find? John, the apostle, having a vision of the throne of God. And it's extraordinary. It, it, it's unbelievable. I think John is, is fumbling for words to describe the indescribable. Jesus is saying, if you overcome, if you conquer, I'll give you the right to sit on my throne with me. And then in chapter four, John says, I looked up and saw a throne and sitting on it is this glowing like diamonds and rubies and there's lightning coming from the throne and it's God on the throne and there's this sea of glass and there's a roaring thunder coming from the throne. There's pillars of fire. There's seven torches, which represent seven spirits, which is just a picture of the Holy Spirit and his presence. There are these 24 elders who are dressed in robes, but they're bowing down and they're casting their crowns before the throne. There are these four creatures, each with six wings and eyes all over their bodies. And these creatures, these majestic creatures are crying out towards the throne, holy, holy, holy. And there are like a hundred million angels, a hundred million angels bowing down and worshiping God who is on the throne. All of this is happening around the throne. And Jesus is like, if you would but overcome and conquer, I will grant you to sit with me on the throne. That throne where all of this worship and all of these creatures, all, all of these living beings are just pouring out their praise to God. 
And Jesus is saying, if you overcome, you can sit on that throne with me. Like, are, are you really going to look at your life? You're going to look at all, all of that, that throne, and then look at a lukewarm life and go, I don't know. I don't know. I think complacency makes more sense. I think apathy towards God, I think kind of in makes more sense. Look, Jesus wants you to know on the one hand, if that's you, it makes him sick and he wants to spit you out of his mouth. Yet on the other hand, he stands at the door and knocks. And if you hear his voice and open the door, he'll come in and share a meal with you. He'll share friendship and fellowship and intimacy with you. And he'll share his throne with you. You will reign with him. And doesn't that make you want to conquer? Doesn't that make you want to persevere? Doesn't that make you want to lean into Jesus and go, yeah, I'm failing in these huge categories of my life, but you're standing at the door and knocking and I just need to invite you in again to those areas where I have kept you away from. There's this ancient story about a, a baby boy adopted by a princess. And this princess was the daughter to the world's most powerful king. So growing up, this boy knew influence and wealth and prestige and fine food and royal clothing. He became educated and cultured and privileged. By society's standards, he had it all and lacked nothing. But he left it all. He left it all because he encountered something infinitely more valuable, something that would make enjoying everything else he had an utter waste of his life. That ancient story is about a man named Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read about Moses, where it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Over and over again to these churches, Jesus reminds them who he is in ways that absolutely would have struck a chord with the city and he also reminds them of the promises that await, that he will see them through. Eternity awaits, and it is good. Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. To Laodicea, he says, you say I'm rich, not realizing that you're poor. Here's the thing. Luxury comfort, materialism, complacency, apathy. These are not words we're unfamiliar with. But if we're not careful, we can lose sight of absolutely everything that really matters. There's this old poem and it goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want that etched in my heart. <laughs> I've got five penetrating questions to ask you as we close. 
been praying for you, been praying that the Spirit of God would move in, in this room and in our hearts as we, as we ponder these things. First, have you been excluding Jesus from areas of your life? Right? Does Jesus stand on the outside looking in on your life? Asked another way, what are the areas that you are lukewarm? Right? Lukewarm is the natural consequence of compromise. Where are you compromising in your life? Third, will you pray for Jesus to give you strength in your areas of weakness? The picture in this text is that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, not to the unbeliever, but to the believer who has actually, at certain points, left Jesus outside the door. I think it's a beautiful evangelistic text. It's just that in this case, it's actually for the Christian who's left Jesus outside areas of their lives. So will you pray for Jesus to give you strength in the areas that you have weakness? That's the gospel. He's not asking you to muster it. He's asking for you to turn to him afresh. Fourth, will you embrace the reproof and discipline of Jesus? I mean, this is a, this is a biblical theme that Je the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Reproof means to knock us from the path of error. It's a loving thing to do. It's sometimes difficult. That's why we don't usually pray a prayer like this. It's a, one of those dangerous prayers. Will you embrace the reproof and discipline of Jesus? Because he stands at the door and knocks. Fifth, here really is the dangerous prayer. Are you willing to pray for Jesus to do whatever it takes to get you on fire for him? What if we were a church full of useful Christians? Healing hot, refreshingly cool, but never lukewarm. I don't mean five of us. I mean all of us. Are you willing for Jesus? Are you willing to pray for Jesus to do that kind of renovation in you? That kind of invitation to Jesus afresh, where you're like, I'm not just going to keep. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a really fine line to try and walk as a preacher because you're like, I don't want people to feel like crap and, and walk away feeling like garbage. <clears throat> and I want them to have hope, but I don't want to, I don't want to sell a cheap gospel where it's like, just keep living in mediocrity. And Jesus loves that. It's okay. Cause there's grace. You know what I mean? Like neither of those things are where, are where he's going in the text. So, so, so we should be left with neither of those inclinations in our own minds. Should we feel conviction and should that lead us, prompt us to open the door afresh to Jesus in areas of our lives where we have barricaded off from him? Yes, please do that. But don't leave here thinking, man, I'm, I, I, I suck. I'm the worst. Jesus can't do anything with me. No, he stands and knocks. And the invitation isn't for you to run out and go and do a bunch of things. The invitation is to open the door. And he stands there and says, I'll come in. Let's do this work together. That's Jesus' invitation to you. And I, I can't think of a better way to, uh, to, to now participate in communion together.
Jesus says, be zealous and repent. Buy from me true riches, the only riches that really matter. I will clothe you in my righteousness, not the finest of your culture. I will clothe you in true righteousness. And he says, you may have spiritual blindness, but I can give you sight. So I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to invite the communion servers to get into place. And I just want you to spend a few minutes. We've got these questions on the screen. Let's linger on those until uh, we need the lyrics for the songs. And I just consider, I just invite you to consider them. But don't leave here hopeless. If you believe in Jesus, come to the table. This is the Jesus who says, I stand at the door and knock, and if, if you will open the door, I will come and I will eat with you. And the greatest meal that Jesus ever shared is the one of himself, where he's with his disciples and says, the bread represents my body given for you, laid down for you, and the cup represents my blood shed for you. I love you. I went to those lengths for you to rescue you, to save you, to make you whole, to make you spiritually well, to have this open invitation, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So you don't come to the table because you're perfect. You come to the table because Jesus, the spotless one, the, the, our, the very perfection for us, invites us to find our wholeness and our hope in him. So if you believe in Jesus, if you are not greatly at odds with a brother or sister in Christ where you need to repent and make things right, if that's your, your scenario, I invite you to go do that and participate next month. But if you are living in clear conscience, if you have a posture of repentance, I invite you to come and participate. If you're exploring faith in Jesus, if you feel like you're not in a place to come and receive, um, it's okay to observe. No one's going to single you out, think anything of it. But, but over the course of a song or two, come on forward, receive from Jesus his grace, his mercy, his life laid down for yours. And for those of you that really need to hear it this morning, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Open the door. <laughs> Open the door. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you so much. And what this text reminds us of, Lord, is we need you far more than we often think. It's easy for us to be spiritually blind, spiritually naked, spiritually poor. The only remedy, Lord, is more of you. It's more of you. Jesus, I pray that you would do whatever it takes to give us a fire for you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.